seated, and if, you'll, uh, if you have children you'd like to dismiss the children's ministry, you can do that now. And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 12. Luke, chapter 12. And you might ask, well, Chris, uh, we're supposed to be in Acts 4. Why are we in Luke 12? Well, let me read it, and then I'll explain why we're here. Luke, chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse 22. I think I need these today. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And of which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, where no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why are we reading Luke 12, verses 22 through 34? Well, last week, we continued our journey through the book of Acts, and we hit verse 32, which says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and one said that, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And so uh, if you're visiting today, this is going to be kind of a weird message, probably not a, a, a typical representation, so you'll need to come back next week. And I'll tell you the same thing next week, so you have to come back the week after that. No. Uh, we're in this moment, we've, we've gone through two sections in the book of Acts, Acts 2 and Acts 4, in which... The commonality of possessions is celebrated, right? Acts 2 and Acts 4. And I explained some of the uh, historical, redemptive, theological reasons for that last week. Thought that was helpful to understand. Well, why are these sections about people selling their land in, in the scriptures and so on? So you could go back to that sermon for a little added information. But we're at one of those moments, culturally and in our journey through scripture, where we might need to talk about the idea of socialism. Again, not a typical sermon, not a typical topic, but I think because we have just seen two instances of this radical generosity and because of what's happening culturally, we can see similarities, for instance, between what I just read in Acts 4.32 and what Mark said, what Mark's slogan was, which was, 
each according to his ability, to each according to his need, right? So we could see similarities there. And in fact, Marx, who was an atheist and who once wrote that religion was the opioid of the masses, he loved Acts 4.32, you know. He wasn't above using the scriptures when it helped support his cause. So I think it would be good, I think it would be helpful to take one week out of many in which we don't really discuss politics or those sorts of things, take one week and really consider socialism and whether or not it's scriptural. Uh, I was reading a a poll that recently came out that said 70% of millennials are somewhat or extremely likely to vote for a socialist candidate. 57% of millennials believe that the Declaration of Independence better guarantees freedom and equality than the Communist Manifesto. So 57% said, well, I think I would prefer uh, the Declaration of Independence to the Communist Manifesto. So I think this is a relevant message. The passage that I read this morning in Luke 12, in verse 30, Jesus says, For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. All the nations of the world seek after these things. And what I would, what I would tell you about socialism is just one of many attempts to seek after the things described in Luke chapter 12. Jesus is predicting and he says, all the nations seek after these things. Friends, uh, the only difference in socialism from all the other methods that have been uh, constructed to seek after health and wealth The only difference with socialism is that it pretends not to be a religion. So up until uh, socialism, every scheme for provision, for equality, for care, every scheme was was forthrightly described as a religion. You worship this idol, you get this sacrifice, and the rain would fall on your crops next year, and so on and so forth. So the nations have been scheming to develop a system for provision— forever, but they've always been honest about it. They've always said, well, it's a religion and socialism uh, is, it needs to be called out in this particular respect. It is every bit a religion as any other scheme is that aims at seeking uh, fulfillment in society. So, so uh, one of the most prominent socialists in modern history is a guy named Eric Fromm, brilliant guy. And he was who Bernie Sanders was reading in the 1960s. He wrote all sorts of books. He wrote a book called The Freedom of Man. He wrote a book called Marx on Man. Uh, Eric Fromm was, uh, fled Nazi Germany into the United States. He was a renowned psychiatrist and uh, a, a renowned author, a respected author. And, and he, was, he was a socialist, and he was a big fan of Marx in many respects. And so listen to how Eric Fromm describes Marx's uh, perspective or his goal. So this is all kind of under this heading of socialism is indeed a religion. Let's, Let's be honest about this. Socialism is indeed a religion. So one of the things Eric Fromm says in his book, Marx's Concept of Man, socialism for Marx is a society which permits the actualization of man's essence by overcoming his alienation. The actualization of man's essence by overcoming his alienation. It is nothing less 
than creating the conditions for the truly free, rational, active, and independent man. It is the fulfillment of the prophetic aim, the destruction of idols. So it's very religious language, right? Describing socialism, very religious language. Marx was seeking a kind of salvation. Uh, Fromm goes on to say, socialism, uh, it's hardly possible to talk about Marx's attitude toward religion without mentioning the connection between his philosophy of history uh, and of socialism with the messianic hope of the Old Testament. So, so Marx was deeply embedded in Old Testament theology and, and his uh, system that he formed is, has a religious aim, and that is to save men, to lead men into self-actualization. And, you know, part of, part of what you can see, whether you can kind of identify, is this a religion or not, is, well, what's the vision for the future? Like, how, how do you see this all coming to pass? Because every, every religion has an eschatology. They all have an end game. They all have a vision for what they're trying to achieve. And, and so there's a guy named Leon Trotsky, who was also a, a renowned advocate for socialism and communism. And Trotsky writes of the future man under socialism, man will become immeasurably stronger, wiser, and subtler. This is the communist man he's talking about. Man will become immeasurably stronger, wiser, and subtler. His body will become more harmonized, his movements more rhythmic, his voice more musical. The forms of life will, dramat- will become dynamically dramatic. The average human type will rise to the heights of an Aristotle, a Goethe, or a Marx. And above this, new peaks will rise. So we're talking about a vision of glorification. Uh, a human being becomes this superhuman being, which also is something Christianity believes, right? We, we believe that in the resurrection, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will take on new capacities to enjoy the glory of God. So what we're seeing here is very religious language. It's just that their timeline was extremely quick. You know, it was extremely immediate. Um, there's, there's always got to be a devil in every religion, right? There's always got to be a reason or a root or a cause for the evil that the religion is trying to address. Now, if you've listened to Bernie Sanders' speeches, you know that probably at the end of every fourth sentence or so, the word billionaires comes up in a pejorative sense. Like, there's always got to be the bad guy. Every religion has one. And for socialism, the bad guy was the greedy, uh, wealthy uh, establishment. But, but most importantly, and what we're really going to talk about today, is that every religion has to have a father. Every religion has to have uh, someone kind of running things, and someone in charge, and someone caring. And socialism has moved from one failed experiment to another. The old joke is, uh, is uh, what did socialists use to light their houses before they had candles? Electricity. Uh, you, you know, uh, the, 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 the continual failure of this experiment is, is when you read history and you, you read their criticisms, socialism's kind of intramural criticisms of each other, it always comes down to, well, that was just the wrong guy leading it, and so on and so forth. But let me read something that was written in 1951 in Pravda, which was the USSR uh, uh, magazine. I think it had something like 14 million subscribers at its peak. Very popular magazine. Let me read something to you uh, from Pravda 
that will kind of give you this idea that, yes, Marxism is a religion and, and, or socialism is a religion. It says, if you meet with difficulties in your work or suddenly doubt your abilities, think of him, of Stalin, and you will find the confidence you need. If you feel tired in an hour when you should not, think of him, of Stalin, and your work will go well. If you are seeking a correct decision, think of him, of Stalin, and you will find that decision. I mean, this sounds like a bad Christian song, right? Like a bad, a bad contemporary Christian song, just with Jesus instead of Stalin. Like, it sounds like three verses of a really bad contemporary Christian song. It's a devotionalization, right? It's saying, essentially, when you're struggling, when you're down, think of your father. And that's how they thought of Stalin. It's kind of Papa Joe. That's what they referred to him as, the father of the peoples. Now, what does all of this have to do with God? What does all this have to do with the scripture we just read? What does this have to do with anything? Well, one of the things that is an interesting outworking in socialism is that it has this really deep root in some highly dysfunctional daddy issues. This is a a very interesting thing. Socialism seems to have deep roots in dysfunctional daddy issues. Um, There's an ancient correlation between work, provision, and fatherhood. Right? Ancient. It's a biblical correlation we see in, in our passage, but just an ancient correlation between provision and fatherhood. Something interesting is happening on the inner workings of socialism as it pertains to the father. So uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, just profoundly racist man. Not, I'm not a fan. Um, he, he passed a series of bills aimed what they called the war on poverty. And um, he is reported to have said, if we pass this bill, we'll have these, in words, vote in Democrat for the next 200 years. Extremely cynical, extremely dark individual. This war on poverty was a, was a, was a bunch of legislation that had socialist underpinnings. I'm not going to say it was socialist. It, it wasn't. But it certainly was a radical expansion of government. I just want to show you some statistics from the African-American community before and after this this bill, these bills were passed. So uh, in 1964, there were 28% of African-American children were born out of wedlock. Immediately following the passage of this legislation, that number went up to 50%. And in 2012, 72% of African-American children are born out of wedlock. Now, many historians of all political stripes would say that built into this big government system that Johnson laid out, this war on poverty turned out to be a war on paternity. It, it, it's essentially turned out to be a weaponization of government against fathers. And, and you saw that the, the importance, the centrality, the necessity of fatherhood greatly diminish, as would be expected when the government decides to take up the role of father. Uh, Frederick Engels 
is was, was the co-author with Marx of the Communist Manifesto. And he said this. He said, the single family, this is his vision, the single family ceases to be the economic unit of society. Private housekeeping is transformed into a social industry. The care and education of the children becomes a public affair. So one of the visions built into socialism was the was the eradication of, of households. And they did this by eliminating uh, inheritance and, and other things. It was the eradication of households. Well, what happened was that the father was was just almost automatically made to seem irrelevant. So like I said, they, they, one of the goals in the Communist Manifesto, they have a 10-point plan, and one of the goals uh, was to eliminate all inheritance. They, they wanted to eliminate all transfers of wealth between generations. Now, it's so ironic that this is happening because both Marx and Engels did all of their, um, all of their writing and thinking living off of their parents' inheritance, living off of their parents. Like, they literally were the, the kid in the basement um, for the whole time that they're writing the Communist Manifesto and other works. So there's something that I think is very important to bring before you related to the commandment in Scripture repeatedly to honor your father and mother and what happens when you fail to do so. There's something about ongoing antagonism, bitterness or disappointment in or distance from your earthly father that creates vulnerabilities that can be exploited later. Marx's uh, formation of his entire philosophy, he borrowed greatly from other writers, better thinkers. It all stemmed from, and this is, this is not, by the way, uh, right-wing propaganda or hyperbole, okay? I, I'm saying things that Marxists agree upon. Um, Karl Marx was raised in an Orthodox Jewish household that ate kosher, that kept the Sabbath, and so forth, until his father came home one day when he was still relatively young, I think he was maybe a teenager at this time, and said, we're becoming Lutheran. Uh, and you're going, Carl, you're going to need to be baptized. Why are we becoming Lutheran? Because Germany had just passed, it's like 1815-ish. Germany had just passed a law. This will show you how deep the anti-Semitism in Germany goes back. Germany had just passed a law that made it illegal, nearly impossible, for practicing Jews to hold prominent positions within society. Carl's dad was a lawyer. And so for the sake of financial expediency, he switched religions. This is indisputably the front end of Marx's development of his philosophy. He saw his dad. He saw, he saw the church as a, hypoc a hypocritical institution, and he saw his dad as a coward. He saw his dad surrender faith for economic expediency. And everything that stems from Marx's work from this point forward is about him dealing with this bitterness he feels toward both his human father and the fatherhood of the culture that surrounds him, the, the establishment. And there is just something extra. And I want you to hear this. I'm not, I want you to hear this well. 
There is something about one's failure to honor your father and your mother. There's something about deep-rooted estrangement, bitterness, or disappointment that makes you especially vulnerable down the road to tyranny and despotism. So you might be wondering, well, what's the big takeaway from this message, Chris, besides don't vote for Bernie, which I don't think you're even going to have a chance to, right? Uh, what's the big takeaway? The big, the big takeaway is, is that do not discount, do not discount the deep problems projected in your future if you cannot, in your heart, through grace, faith, and forgiveness, feel good about your dad. Respect him. And if you can't respect him, at least say, well, he's the outlier and I'm not, I'm not assuming the worst of all human fathers. One of the greatest predictors of people who will be later victimized is this estrangement issue. So in 1967, you guys know how I love my 60s music. In 1967, the Beatles wrote a song called She's Leaving Home. She's leaving home. Anyway, uh, and it's a sad song about a girl, teenage girl, who runs away. Well, what, one of the things that, to remember about the 1960s is that during that time, thousands, hundreds of thousands of children, especially girls, were running away from home. And where did they wind up when they ran away from home? Well, they wound up in so-called experimental communities. They wound up communes. They left home almost entirely with some sense of moral superiority over what they considered to be the consumer, uh, money-driven values of their parents. And they fled into these experimental communities where all of that was supposed to change and everyone lived as equals and so on and so forth. And what happened, there's, there's books written about this, what happened was, let me just read a quote from one of the from one of the guys who wrote a book about this. The communes reverted not to natural justice, but to the state of nature. By rejecting coercive culture of laws, the communes removed rules that restrained human behavior and strong personalities came to dominate. The communes ended up creating some paternalistic dynamics that the runaways sought to escape. One of the things that would happen is, is that women would run away from home run into these communes and fall under the dominion, the dark authority of men who were running what were really cults. And what you found was, is that these girls who were running away because their dads loved money too much wound up becoming essentially parts of harems where males dominated in a different way, in a much darker way. And this is, friends, this is not something that only happened in the 60s. This is a predictor. This is something that pastorally I'm trying to say to you is when God says honor your father and mother so that it might go well with you and, live long, and you may live long in the land, there is a lot there. And one of the things that's going on there is, is that the longer you walk in open or hidden antagonism, toward the parents that God gave you, the more likely you become to be dominated by something worse. 
And that's what we see repeatedly through the example of socialism. We see this deeply dysfunctional relationship with the Father bear itself out in expressions of overreaching control. What what we see in socialism is, is a weaponization of envy and bitterness and so forth. So Thomas Sowell is a famous black economist. economist. He said, I have never understood why it is greed to want to keep the money you have earned, but not greed to want to take somebody else's money. So what's happening in in this, this cauldron, this kind of dark, thick soup of fatherly bitterness is it's, it's okay. Envy is okay. And envy is not greed. Bitterness is okay. But boy, those, those, those patriarchs, they're just, they're just the cause of all so much pain. Well, what's going to happen is, is that you're going to walk away from a well-intending but fallible, sinful patriarch into the arms of someone who calls themselves dad and dominates you. That's the trajectory. So all of that to get back to our passage, Luke 12, look at verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The whole socialist scheme comes down to this. A nation's attempt to seek after the things we all need but to do so as spiritual orphans. It is an attempt to create a kingdom with a lesser father. And I'm just going to say it this way. You look at this passage and you see the supreme, beautiful sovereignty of God who personally, with love, care, and wisdom, adorns each blade of grass on the face of the earth. And tickles each one with the right amount of wind. And waters each one with the right amount of rain. This beautiful, profoundly complex, sovereign God who is over all things. It's a big God. And he's our father. And the simple prediction is this. If you don't have a big God, you need a big government. Because we all need these things. And I've got to have some system that assures me that someone's looking out for me. But the only person I can trust to really look out for me is the one who clothes the lilies and waters the grass. That's why I said in our prayer at the beginning, there is no greater rich. There is no greater treasure. The highest luxury available to the human being is the privilege of saying to the God who created all things, you are my father. Socialism is an attempt to scratch that itch 
without having the God of the universe. Let me say it maybe even more starkly. There is another spiritual father who specializes in envy, bitterness, accusation, and theft. And I think that's the father of socialism. So let's conclude with some application points. First of all, uh, get right with dad. This is an extremely complicated issue because our dads are extremely complicated people. This is, this, some of us had wonderful fathers, and it's relatively easy to look back and say, man, I'm so thankful. And some of us didn't. I can promise you that God's law applies to you and that his requirement that you honor your father and mother has not uh, um, elapsed or expired because you've aged out. It's, it's still relevant if you're 80. It's still relevant if you're 19. It's still relevant if you're 44. This is a fundamental. Find a way through prayer, scripture, journaling. Find a way to make sure that you can love and be thankful for your father. And some of you, man, that's... Some of you, the way to do that because your father was so monstrous, the only way to do that is to say, um, I'm, I'm, I'm honoring him by completely condemning him. Um, the way that I can best express honor to my father is to say, I write, I write it off. You are just, just no. But that's a very rare person. Most of us have complicated relationships with our father. And most of us, without realizing it, spend a great deal of our time um, living in unforgiveness in one respect or another. And that has a trajectory. But of course, the most important thing is, is to get right with your Heavenly Father. All of this straining and fretting about what will come to pass is merely an invitation for you to double down on and celebrate this great luxury you have. And that is, is that while all the other nations are scrambling with various schemes to try to make sure that we get enough food and we get enough clothing, we have the incredible privilege of saying, as verse 30 says, all the nations seek after these things, but your father knows that you need them. When you're looking at economics, if you want to do it primevally in an ancient way, you always would ask, what's going on with fathers? Because the ancient understanding of provision is tied up in the fathers. So when you're really thinking about, why am I worried about tomorrow? Why am I worried about what I'm going to have? What, why am I worried about making this payment? Why am I worried about my job and so on and so forth? Why am I worried about my retirement? Always an invitation. Always an invitation. To look, look up and say, I have a father who is the creator and sustainer of all things. So I want to talk about the rise of nuns, rise of the nuns. That's not N-U-N, that's N-O-N-E-S. Uh, last year, 21% uh, of people polled identified themselves as evangelicals. And 23% of people identified themselves as nuns. Uh, as they have zero religious affiliation at all. 
So this is an extreme increase. It looks like a hockey stick curve where you have about 23% of people identifying themselves as having like nothing, like no religion whatsoever. Well, you can't live life without a religious framework, even if you want to be non-religious. You can't live life without a religious framework. And so what you're seeing with eyes and socialism is the nuns are looking for a religion that isn't called a religion. And they're taking a serious look at socialism because they're realizing, like we all do, that we all need a father who's in charge. We all need someone who's managing this chaos. We all need a system. And so the increased popularity of socialism is, I think, directly connected to the increase in this nuns category. And what does that have to do with us? Well, friends, come on now. This is the, I want you to really take this to heart. So Winston Churchill, I feel like we're kind of doing a little bit of a generational ping pong right now. Like I'm talking to young people and then I'm talking. So let's, let me talk to the older people. Winston Churchill said something like, uh, if you're not a communist in your 20s, you don't have a heart. And if you're not uh, a capitalist in your 40s, you don't have a head, something like that. Uh, let me talk to you who, who think, Chris, this is, I'm glad you're saying this because socialism is terrible and I've thought so for a long time. Well, here's the thing, Mr. Fox News. Uh, the reason why this is even being discussed right now is because uh, we have, in this moment, the most under-evangelized group of individuals in the history of Christianity, as best I can tell. And they're your children or your neighbor's children. And so let's just, let's just, let's just celebrate God's beauty and his irony, because God doesn't care whether you have a retirement fund or not. I mean, not, not you know, like, Take that with a grain of salt. But let's just celebrate the beauty of this. If you will continue to be neglectful of sharing the gospel, then these people will come one day and take your 401k with a pitchfork. <laughs> like, it's, that's just how it's going to work. Like, like, this massively under-evangelized group of people who have not been consistently brought the gospel by their forefathers are now seriously considering the seductive claims of Mr. Carl. And they're really kind of interested in it because it's a religion that's not a religion. And that's going to have real consequences on, on your tax bracket and your, in, your, your inheritance and so on and so forth. So it's literally, it's really funny actually. Like we're, we're not going to evangelize you. We're going to let you go on. We're going to let you do what you want. We're not going to pursue you with the gospel. We're not going to orient our whole like, lives around sharing the gospel with this generation. And they say, thank you. Now, I still need a religion, and I'm choosing Bernie or Carl or however. The truth is, if you're going you're gonna to need, if you actually care about these things, just turn off Fox News and start sharing the gospel with the people in your world. Because if you don't give them Jesus, they can't have the Father. And if they don't have the Father, then what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to toil and strain and freak out like, like you and I would. That's why I think it's so interesting that in this passage, Jesus ends with verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. 
Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches, where no, moth, where, where no moth destroys, and where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what's really interesting about this is, is that when you look at the radical, so let's get back to Acts and ask, is Acts 2, is Acts 4 prescribing some sort of communism or socialism? Absolutely not. The verb tenses in the passages are imperfect. They're indicating it's a one-time kind of deal, meeting a particular need in a particular moment. And even if it does imply the liquidation of assets, it does not imply then um, everybody living together or everybody working under assigned jobs or so on and so forth. What we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4 is really important. What we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4 is a group of people who believe so much in the expansion of the gospel message that they liquidate their assets to make that message go forth. That's the generosity we see, and that's the purpose behind the generosity we see. The reason why they turned the world upside down is they were willing to invest their treasure in preaching the truth to the world. That seems to be the answer to the question. Is Acts 2, as Acts 4, socialist, communist, and so forth? It is absolutely not. It is simply people who know that in order to make the gospel message known throughout the world, they must liquidate their finances. They must give generously so that that message can go forth. So there's your history lesson. Let me pray. Lord, as we're praying, I just want to pray for people who, um, who felt in some respect some sort of question about well, how much their uh, perspective on the world is unknowingly defined by resentment or difficulties in their relationship with their father. And there are no easy uh, answers to any of that, except that you call us to be people of grace. You call us to be people of kindness and care. You call us to forgive others as you've forgiven us. And you also call us, Lord, to gratitude and to celebrate the good we do see at work in others. I just pray, God, that you would bless people who would maybe be aware of some struggle in relationship to their mother and father. It's a, it's a, it's a subtle trick to use in gratitude or even real pain to propel us into further uh, domination and estrangement. And so I just pray for them, God, that you would give them grace and that you would set them free. Father, I pray most of all that whether the market's up or the market's down, whoever's running for president, whether our fridge is empty or, or not, whether we have toilet paper and hand sanitizer or not, in all things, Lord, we would learn to be content that we could do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And Lord Jesus, we praise you for bringing us the treasure of all treasures. Bringing us into relationship with the God of the universe, whereby we can hear Jesus' words in this passage and say, I don't need to strain about these things. I neither need to be envious or hoarding. 
of wealth because my Father knows what I need. Great Father, I am I'm way happier trusting you to know what I need than any other individual in this world, whether they be a politician or a preacher or anybody. I'm so thankful that it's, it's you who know what I need and it's you who provides. Thank you, God, for the freedom that comes from that. Lord, we praise you for being a great provider and care. We have no interest in establishing a system, formal or informal, that somehow tries to get around your care and provision. No interest whatsoever. The system we've got with you is great. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray.